Bose is the presenting partner of Beyond the Grid. That's because Bose QuietComfort 35.2 goes beyond what you would expect from a pair of headphones. Just flip the switch to experience the industry-leading active noise reduction feature and all distractions of the world around you fade away, allowing you to focus fully on what matters to you. Hi, I'm Mark Webber and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hello all, it's TC here with another episode and another driver, who our Aussie listeners might call a ripper of a guest. It's Mark Webber, a man whose commitment on track was matched by his one-liners off it. During his career, he won nine Grand Prix for Red Bull and a sports car world championship for Porsche, and he's now retired and doesn't have a race license of any kind. We caught up at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, so if you hear the roar of engines, that's why. We've known each other for 20 odd years, and I've interviewed Mark hundreds of times, but never like this. And if you want headlines to lure you in, think Vettel, Alonso, Schumacher, they're all in there, and he has interesting things to say about each of them. He speaks directly and honestly, and still with so much passion for the sport. And as you'd expect of someone who's taken to TV punditry so seamlessly, he's a great listener. Well, Mark, welcome to Beyond the Grid. I just want to start by reflecting a little bit, really. You've been retired now for a wee bit of time. How do you look back on it all? Is it a bit of a dream sometimes? Uh, Definitely, definitely. I think, um, you know, when you get older, you, I think you get more secure in a way. You get more, um, well, less tolerant of of things that could have been trivial in the past and aren't so trivial now. Um, so things that might have been a bit of a beat up, whether it's professionally, personally, I think I need hopefully get a little bit more mature, which racing drivers are quite late on that in, in many ways, uh, or can be. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's amazing how fast it goes, which is obviously everyone knows that, how quickly time goes. But also I feel like a, um, actually a pretty different person to when I was the competitor I was like I'm really it's, I do see it nearly in, in sort of two halves um, how have you changed? much more relaxed much more um, I suppose open and just uh, I want to use a better word than selfish but in terms of just I mean yeah, driven and all those things which I've still got traits of those no question about it but in terms of when I was racing um, I believe that I was on this one way journey to maximize my potential and get everything I could out of myself. I'd come a long way from Australia. Um, I'd invested so much of my, uh, the level of talent that I had, I suppose, and and the graft and the currents that I put towards myself at at, at getting better. And the people around me as well had been sensational from my immediate family through to Anne. So you sort of feel that um, it is absolutely now or never often in car racing and especially as it's a big individual sport so I felt that that was pivotal for me to do that because there were sections of my profession that didn't come natural to me like being fast sometimes like I was reasonably fast mean? I was fast but I just like when you get to the the last few guys obviously when we're talking about Seb and Lewis and Fernando and Michael and you know JB and like I was so so happy to have hung out with that generation of driver because they took me to a, a point that I probably never would have went to myself. So to close all that off, um, I was 
not the best multitasker. So socially and sort of having the brackets of actually, you know, having good nights out and rah, rah, I was actually very narrow when I was competing um, because I just saw it as I wanted to race as long as I possibly could because I love that. I loved the competition. I was a competitor. I loved competing. I actually was. And I wanted to have that for as long as I could. And I wanted to stop when I felt that I was driving at, at, a, at a, still at a good level but didn't want to be like an old boxer that felt like, oh, here we go, and we're going to go back down through the grid, which I did on the way up. I don't want to do that on the way back down. My last Grand Prix, I finished on the podium with Fernando and Sebastian. I got the fastest lap of the race in Brazil. And that was a, a really nice way to finish my Grand Prix career. Decent sports car racing, um, which I loved from a team component-wise. And then you're now in this absolutely second chapter of, let's say in the English way, of, of one's life, Tom, of one's life, <laughs> second chapter. How is normal life by comparison? Are uh, you in, are you, do you enjoy life more now than you did as a racing driver? <sighs> really tough question. Um, the initial reaction is yes, I do, because it, in, inherently you have a lot of pressure to do a job uh, like that, but that's what we love doing. I love the competitive side. I love working with the team. I love surprising. We love surprising the competition. They had something better coming. So there was lots of things which was so, so rewarding and engaging. And you don't realise when you work with the best how fortunate you were and race against the best and work in you know, such an incredible industry like Formula One is and was still. Um, then you come out of that and you all those disciplines and standards going into, let's call it, Civvy Street to a degree um, can be challenging but naturally you still try and surround yourself with those type of people in, in whatever walks of life you do when you finish which I have I've got a great the sport continues to give for me I've got great people and, and partners around me since I've stopped racing um, that took planning and effort that doesn't come to you of course you've got to work harder that but I'm enjoying the, 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 the personal side is unquestionably better unquestionably better the private the, the professional side I miss I miss parts of my profession I do but I get frustrated as hell that I know that it's not gonna, I'm not going to be able to do what I used to be able to do and you just have to let it go I've got a good friend Pat Rafter tennis player he said mate it's called fucking reality <laughs> that's how it is you cannot drive a Monaco Grand Prix and get pole when you're 43 or 40. It hasn't been done well, in, the, in the modern general, in the last sort of 15 years. Um, because you don't get any better. It gets harder. And one of my biggest heroes, look at Valentino Rossi right now. We all love Valentino, but he can race. His experience is just hanging him in there on Sunday afternoons. But out and outright speed, he's not there. Um, as it once was. He knows that. He's got to be crafty with the chess set now. And to hang with Marquez on one lap is not possible. So you see it over and over and over again in sport. And You, you know you yeah. said you've got to let go. Is it true that you don't even have a race license now? Yeah, I don't. I mean, yeah. that's letting go to yeah. an extreme, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's amazing how um, even things like uh, wearing racing suits, wearing helmets, if I can get away with that, I do I don't even, I, I've nearly gone that far detached from, look, I like driving fast, don't get me wrong. I like, if you've got a buggy on a, in a, in, on a farm, acreage, bit of farm, buggies, dirt bikes, look, throttle in my hand, a bit of, I have got petrol in my veins. There's no question about that. But I just feel this huge departure from racing in Formula One is extremely, extremely hard to replace. And I want to try and keep that, in the bank for as long as possible in a way 
Porsche have asked me so many times, what about driving the GT car? Not really, no. I don't really want to because there's people who can do a job in it and I'm just going to be frustrated how early I've got to break, how long I've got to wait till I get back on the throttle and how slow the lap time's going to be. You were an intense racing driver. That, that yeah, comment? absolutely, yeah. Which I've just said pretty much. Yeah. I was and do you think you would, if you'd been less intense, you might have been a better racing driver? Did you try and force the door open sometimes when it just didn't want to open? And yeah, I think that um, probably my, one of my biggest weaknesses was I was intense, but uh, and that's right. That is a really good word for me, I suppose. But in terms of, I was also I believed I could do the job. I did believe I could do a, a very, very, very good job. And sometimes, and it's a horrible word in motorsport and a horrible word in most professional sports, but if the old she'll be right mentality, like certain she'll be rights, like I will get, there were certain briefings or certain things, it's like, should I prep a bit more on that? Should I do a bit more prep on that? No, I'll cover that off tomorrow, I'll be fine. And that's the little chink, I suppose, where if I had my time again, the Stuart-esque approach, the Prost-esque approach, the, the Vettel-esque approach, you know, the guys that, and all those guys might not have been the fastest similar. I mean, Lewis and, and, and that Lewis is fast, but in terms of his application of the job, you can argue how much work he puts in here and there, but ultimately he's got unbelievable skill. But for me to, in terms of feel and skill, not the, the whole technical side and getting the team around him, which is obviously good. So there's so many dynamics to our profession which are important. I believe that there wasn't many mechanics that worked on my car that didn't enjoy working for me. I think that a lot of mechanics did. I, I enjoyed driving their cars and, and we had a good a good bond on that. Um, there was lots of things which, and some people don't have that. Some guys, that, that's, a, that's a huge component that doesn't go. So I suppose if I had it again, mate, um, less intense, there was things which I thought was overbearing or more overbearing that I, I just built up more tension than was probably needed to be there. and. and I think because I just wanted the space, I wanted to drive, and you can't have that. It's like that's the profession, you know. And I tell that to young guys now, and I tell them exactly this. And you know, this is this is the profession. You know, it's just part of it. What was really funny was after the Korean Grand Prix in '13, I think the car caught fire again, and um, all the drivers were on a jet, which I'd organised, which was a great trip across from Korea to Japan, and we went out on the. We had a massive night on the Sunday night, massive. Who? Really when you say all oh, the drivers, mate, it was. It was 70% of the grid. Right. 70% of the grid were there. Massive night. And we were all dusty on Monday, to say the least. We were Monday off. We decided there was a... So back down, to, there, was, there was probably about six or seven of them again. On Tuesday night, we went again. This is my last year in F1. You knew at this point that yeah. you were quitting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, the announcement was out. But talking about your intense scenario, so I had two massive benders... And I qualified on pole to Suzuka on Saturday. Like, and I said to myself, maybe I did miss the sweet spot here. Of course, you know, that was borderline James Hunt sort of spec, you know, without the, without the crumpet. But in terms of the alcohol we consumed, you know, we had a real big crack at that, that week. And I'm like, okay, maybe I could have been a bit less intense. But it was hard, yeah, to, to not be. Uh, because that's... You know, call it, I don't know, is it a chip on the shoulder? Is it something, you know, the Australians or we've come that far? I don't know, mate. I just feel that there's so much at stake and you feel that you, you can get bogged down in in, um, in not letting into chance, really. And that's why the intensity comes across. Well, in terms of your dealings with the media, I certainly felt that there was only one other driver who was like, who wanted it, outwardly wanted it as much as you, and that was Fernando Alonso. Yeah. You, I thought you two were the... 
a, a class apart from everybody else when mm. you were together. But um, let's talk teammates. Can you compare Rosberg and Vettel? Or are they just light years different? No, both same nationality, which is important because the way they, they, they sort of go about their trade in terms of understanding and questioning and, and, and getting to the bottom of technical matters or, you know, clearly making the car go faster, which is the job we, we, we all had. Nico was in his first year in F1. I think he, he, didn't have, he didn't have the belief that Vettel had. I didn't see the belief and the hunger that Vettel had early doors. I think Nico needed much longer to confirm to himself that he, he belonged there. Where Vettel said, I fucking belong here. I am here. This is, this is going to happen. Helped by his victory at Monza. Great. Big, yeah. So, um, uh, he had a lot of success fast. And I remember Nico in Budapest, uh, just after... No, we are just about to go into the, to the August break in 06. And Kirky said, we, he needs this break. He's mentally... This, this is... Intense Formula One's intense. Nico was on the edge, I think, in that first eight months at Williams in terms of you know we're having technicals, we're having, and it was not that smooth. So that was it was a tough introduction for him. Um, and you could see he was green, he was green into it. And again, just that desire, I see the desire and hunger, you know, how much of it really was him. And you saw that later on, how much he had to put into that. Of course, it was it wasn't overly maybe over natural for Nico, but he got the job done, and he had to find ways to trick his head to to get that that hunger and fire and belief and and get that going and come out of the old man's shadows I suppose or all those things which are the top typical questions that he would get up get asked. Sebastian um, much much more probably as they are always now you know that, that every sort of five six year blocks we get the guys arriving more complete and Sebastian was more complete even though he arrived only two years later after Nico but um, yeah and I didn't work with Sebastian you know obviously in, in 08 actually Seb tested the Williams in uh, I think it was 05 off the back of uh Right. Yeah, and he was rabbit in the headlights. Obviously, that was way too early in her ref, and he said, this is not for me. This is so quick. Obviously, his head fell off in three minutes flat, and he couldn't hang on to it physically. He wasn't there. Um, so, yeah, he had that little snapshot of exposure early doors, and that can be a pivotal thing because you have to... So he had exposure to how brutal it was going to be. Then he could go away and think about that for a year and a half and say, you know, this is... The intimidation factor was ginormous which was a good thing because he certainly respected when it's going to come back again I need to get my ducks lined up and being the calculating individual that Sebastian is he doesn't forget much so um, that would have been a nice entry for him is he, yeah. a, is he an honest guy with his teammates? was he playing funny games? was he political with you directly? Um, I mean there was the whole Red Bull thing but I feel that's almost a sideshow to what yeah, I'm asking you now yeah um, oh he was would he mislead you on setup and stuff? He was extremely creative with run plans, with, you know, he would certainly get his engineers on side to, it was, it was, it was a bit of, it wasn't them and us, like there was times where you would plug into like, okay, well, this is in the interest of the team in terms of development, to make the car go quick, you know, it was a different, it, it wasn't as open as, as, as it could be, and you know what, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that because, you know, we were the same pretty much on the other side and that's what drove you both on to get the best out of what it was and that was up to then the management, as you say, then the, the, level, the next level up to try and, you know, massage that together, which was no mean task. We've seen so many times that that just often ends in tears, which, you know, not only engineering, dynamics, the team, the wall between the teams, 
the team. So I, the, the plural, I say teams within the team, which is can be a disaster to manage. So um, he had flashes of, of a meltdown. Sebastian has had those and, and does have those. So I think he has a plan. And often these meltdowns are around scenarios where it's outside a normal routine of a Grand Prix. I mean, a race, so safety cars. Right, yeah. Fuji 07. Yeah. That would come under this particular list, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. And oh. you didn't, relations didn't get off to a great start, let's face it. No. I, I remember you in the media going, talking, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the quote, was it? Kids, yeah, yeah. the damn kids yeah. coming in. Oh, that was a bizarre one. I mean, Lewis was at really at fault to a degree until he was yo-yoing around. I think McLaren had some different brake material, and it was a cold day, it was raining, it was a disgusting Grand Prix. I had food poisoning on the day, I was feeling pretty rough. Um, in Australia, we call that lower shark shit, so that's pretty low, <laughs> pretty on average. And we got through so much of the difficult part of the Grand Prix, all the aquaplaning. I mean, there was still... But Fernando shunted, you know, which was rare. Um, there was a lot of... Tricky moments throughout the race. There was podium for sure, which was unheard of. A Red Bull and a Taurus on the podium together. Like this was like we'd never been done before. And I put up a sign, Lewis, uh, in the last sector there, saying, "Mate, the gap between the gap to the safety car is ginormous." Like basically, I was looking at him saying, "Mate, you know, you need to like come on. This is the lights are still on. It's not like we're doing a restart. We're, we're now we're still under safety car conditions." And he was pulling a long way back and and mucking around. So I put up beside him. Next minute, boom, you know on the safety car just absolutely harpooned the back of me and, and Sebastian and I went out I know Seb was bawling his eyes out up but he was he was he was shattered so that happened Abu Dhabi he's been off by the safety car hitting DRS boards with Sora Azerbaijan so it's amazing how he's this maximum intense this in focus and concentration that he can do and winning off pole off the front breaking the DRS back in the day I mean that was his signature punch that was he was deadly with that but as soon as there was another connotation there, it became a little bit more tricky. Um, and the other one was interesting in terms of my qualifying record against him when it was one or two time laps in Q3. Is it one lap or two laps? I hated that. He hated that because it wasn't bang, bang, German, like, what's clear? Is it clear or is it not clear? It's still a little bit open. Other tyres are ready on the first lap, maybe we'll do two. Is it going to be one time and then we'll do, or two time and then we'll do one time? And he often hated that. So it's amazing how um, there was chinks. Um, also, his in-laps, braking for the pit lane limiter, poor. I was smashing. Every well, time. You would brake later? Every time. He was always building up to where I would go to Yeah, but to did break you get a line. bit of a cricket score in terms of fines or not? No, no, no. No, no, no. I'm talking oh. break into the line. You yeah, know, yeah, so but you didn't no, get done no, for no, speed. No no, 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 no. No, never on the entry. But he was very poor at judging that braking distance away from... Yeah, like... Yeah. How can he, guys, be so good? But on that, he was actually very mediocre. And I would put pressure Right the way through. Yeah. yeah. It took him a long time to get up to it. And that was obviously something, again, that I would not show until I needed to, of course. So that's the other side. That, you know, and that's what you do, right? So Nico and and those two guys were very, very different. Um, and I would uh, finish or round it all out, Tom, with just, I suppose, the belief desire and hunger and ultimately a bigger competitor but a bigger competitor than Rosberg yeah. okay right so next question then is which takes up so not, not right. that Nico's not a competitor but, but yeah were you surprised that Rosberg quit the way he did very but knowing him as he did and the way Keke told you that yeah. halfway through year yeah. one he was mentally exhausted yeah um, well I think that um, you know he just the levels that he had to go to to, to get the job done, um, which which he did, whatever it was like, he talks about sleeping in different rooms to his wife and all this. I mean, just 
the, the yeah amazing personal sacrifice to um, I mean to next level there's sacrifice and there's like wow he really did do a lot fine fair enough so then how long is that sustainable can you do that for 13 years clearly not so did he do it for five years probably and he said on his head that you know when he got to the end of that year I mean he must have went through I mean I think that Abu Dhabi race mentally tortured him he openly says that so mentally it was torture and what with Lewis backing him oh, up just, yeah. he didn't want to go yeah. through that again yeah. so yeah. that was a serious amount of medication that Lewis dished out there and I think that he stopped too young Lewis uh, sorry Nico should have kept racing but that's there's only one person who can make that call that's him okay who was the best driver you ever raced against raced against Sunday afternoons I would probably say Fernando Extremely creative, uh, mixed it up, whether you're in offense or defense, whether you were trying to get the job done on him, always mixing it up in front, like just moving his, what we call, you know, the disturbed air. So, you know, trying, you could not get your wing in clean air behind him because he was always mixing it up. And then when we had Kurz on top of that, he was very good at moving that round. So you could never settle on behind him, really. It was quite, quite a good battle. Um, and he never gave up. Like Fernando, I cannot even count when he locked up and missed an apex in front of me. Like, if he had an easy pass. Like, you never had, an, you know, when you did that. Um, so he was... Fernando Alonso on Sunday afternoon, I don't if he's done two or three wings in his whole career. Incredible record. He is a brilliant, brilliant racing driver. Over one lap, there's better. Over managing the whole teams in terms of getting the whole team, you know, with your Superman cape on and, and we're gonna go and do this, there could be better. But when it comes to just plug and play, Sunday afternoons, exceptional. Obviously Michael was, I had a few, few battles with Michael. Again, that was intense but you never knew if there might have been your cheap shot here and there, you know. Yeah, there was very rarely a cheap shot for Fernando. Well, talking of cheap shots, Monaco 2-6. Yeah, exactly. You were very outspoken about that yeah. at the time. Outrageous. I mean, um, you know, even now, to do that, 12 years old. Yeah. To do that to your colleagues, I think that um, that was a real slap in the face for us that, you know, it was Kimmy, Fernando and myself sort of trying to get that, that last, where Michael the fast, the last few rows sort of out of Monaco there. Um, and like you just ask yourself the question like why like and just how sharp he is if he drops two tenths of the half chicane then he's got to back and swim pool and it's like okay so there's somewhere in there he's going to do some choreography to to fuck this session all the our last which Monaco always your last sets are quicker your last set of ties is generally going to go faster which Michael knew that he dropped the ball on that but um yeah, and I went to see him in Silverstone a few weeks later. I said, you know, went to Sabine. I said, I'd love to talk to Michael, which we did. Michael was great. I went to see him. He said, look, you know, sometimes you go down a road that you can't turn back out. I said, well, we need to tell that to, the, to all the guys. Like, you know, we need to talk to the GBA. So that was him holding his hand up? Yeah. I knew what I was doing, right? Yeah. And I knew I was yeah. screwing you over. And well, like I said to him, you didn't even crash the car because you didn't get the mechanics. You didn't even, you know, so you could see the whole thing was executed with a bit of yeah. hesitation. And educated eye, like, oh my god, mate, this is just, you know. So, and I just said to him in that meeting, Mike, why? Why, Michael, why? Like, just, you're so gifted. You know, I've often used it, mate, like, that paranoid perfection. Yeah. That was Michael. Oh, this doesn't seem like a silly question, but did you like him as a person? I mean, given what you just said. I never got that close to Michael. I have very good friends of mine that 
loved being with Michael and he had unbelievable great qualities there's no question about it Michael Schumann he has great qualities um, you know he was a colossal individual for our sport he was on his own Schumacher the name in Formula 1 there was no one else Mika was racing with the DC was racing but Michael Schumacher globally like, unbelievable what he meant for our sport and Ferrari and the whole juggernaut he was massive so for him to let his guard down with the odd competitor or especially individuals or media not easy um, so you have to appreciate that but he um, I think he had a lot of a lot of sensational qualities um, unfortunately when the helmet is on obviously sometimes his judgments were, were poor um, we saw that and the old thing yeah why like you know why Adelaide why Haref why why Monaco why bits and bobs why Rubens at Budapest why every now and again it's just like we would all love to raise those out and be um, the Federer but Federer is different it's a different sport Roger is what he is but um, Michael is in that in terms of trophy cabinet in terms of sheer reinventing himself um, did, a, did a very very good job just saying, can you not be Federer in our sport you just wouldn't make it you just wouldn't find well, who success. has been the club Jackie Stewart was Federer wasn't he yeah. Jackie Stewart was Federer yeah. was Prost was Senna no no I don't think they were better because it is it is it is hard. There's a lot of technical when I talk about you know team uh, harmony and, and inertia and momentum around you getting that on board. What does that mean? Do you have to use the media sometimes? Absolutely. Hitting a tennis ball, getting involved, you know. And I'm not you know belittling. I mean, I love my tennis mates. You know, it's better as a icon of, of, of modern day sport um, but our sport and you can't get close you can, getting close and showing that much respect and uh, when you are at 330 kilometers an hour to, you know Fernando and I we never really we did a lot of that but we're never really really as close as the media picked it up to you know I don't care what anyone says if you're wheel to wheel with your brother like if you're really with wheel to wheel with your brother it has to it's going to affect your decisions so um, you are softer with some guys than others there's some guys you just didn't really like so that was really, really, you know, you would really get it out. You said that you and Fernando perhaps weren't as close as the media made you out to be. Mm. But there were, tell me if I'm wrong, a couple of times when you really could have been close. The first of those was Renault. Yeah. Talk us through why you chose to go to Williams ahead of Renault and uh, that... <laughs> Does that really suck yeah. when you look back? It was a stuff up, big stuff up. Um, and uh, Flavio was like, <laughs> Renault had not won any races at that point. You know, so it's interesting to say, like, Williams had just, you know, 03, 04, been pretty competitive. Renault were like, just trying to come through. So when we got to Melbourne, we said, that was a poor decision because you knew yeah. immediately I physically won the race well, not, but, yeah. but Giancarlo won and, and you knew that Williams weren't going to close the gap and uh, I knew in Valencia we went there and the amount of fuel we were taking out of the car because how slow the car was like we are we were like trying to be quick and Williams were losing sponsors and it's like oh my god I remember ringing dad up at the back of the garage going dad we're in a world of pain here world of pain um, and that was coming from a harmonious yet not overly structured, disciplined Jaguar setup in terms of you know we were still you know, clearly finding their way and obviously Red Bull bought them out. But um, so what was the screw ups there? The screw ups was emotionally. What of a drive for Frank and Patrick? 
very excited about that. With the wine? Yeah. I, well, just because I just, I just, I should have went for the, well, I should have listened to, to Flavio at that time saying that, you know, we've got to give this a go. Um, and but why Williams? Why the attraction to Williams? Was it a Alan Jones thing, an Aussie thing? A little bit of that, a little bit of, you know, they, they did a good pitch, I suppose. You look at it like that, it looks like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do this, we're going to do that. At the end of the day, it didn't work out like that. So that was a screw up. It wasn't even better conditions. I had better conditions at Renault as well. <laughs> so it was no good story, mate, any of it. Well, so, that was the yeah. first time. And yeah. then, tell me for a moment, was there another time yeah. when you could have been Ferrari, in red? Yeah. 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 Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, Why didn't that? <laughs> so, off the back of around that Singapore 09 race, which was obviously an interesting evening, to say the least, um, there was a lot of pressure on Flavio's drivers, and Fernando and I stayed with Flavio through a lot of that. There was immense pressure from the FIA and from Max, and obviously, you know, Flavio got moved on. But in terms of you know the drivers around him, and, and Flavio saw a bit of loyalty on that. Obviously, I was furious with what happened, but he still saw some loyalty on my side in terms of you know going forward. And he said that I would love before you finish racing, we've got to get a Ferrari drive. And your reaction to yeah. that? Brilliant, absolutely. But I mean, like every yeah. other racing driver, yeah. the lure of Ferrari was yeah, there for you as absolutely. well. Absolutely. As yeah. strong as it was I, I, to go I, to Frank and Patrick. I, I, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do Oh, bigger. Bigger than probably than any situation I've been in. But also the loyalty factor to, to Dietrich was ginormous. Because Dietrich has been and still is to this day uh, a, great, a great guy for me. Been, been, been brilliant. I've learnt a lot off Dietrich. So Basti started to get a bit of momentum. It was around um, it was 11 Monaco. Renters 11 Monaco. Um, and they were keen on some Red Bull staff, obviously. So they're trying to get some Red Bull people to come as well. One in particular? Uh, or? Well, Peter Pedromo was in the in the crosshairs. He was an aerodynamic guy doing the front wings at the time for Red Bull. Um, still is on his McLaren now. So there's a couple of guys I were interested in. I think also Ferrari were looking to even have potentially a bit of a, an aerodynamic slash wind tunnel set up in, in the UK at the time. So it was, they wanted some HR, some, you know, some reinforcements on the, on the personnel side. And I said, look, I'm out of contract with Red Bull. I'd love to go to Ferrari. Uh, Fernando's there, fine, whatever. Um, was it going to be number two? It, 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 it looked pretty solid, like it was going to be a number two. But I thought, OK. Um, Ferrari's tough to say no. I'm definitely probably going to win some races with Ferrari. Even if, if you're a straight number two, I could win some races. But there was nothing in the contract that was spoke about being number two status. So what made yeah. you think it was going to be? Well, obviously, Fernando's been there. There's no way in a million years we had the best car. Fernando being there for three or four years, you're going to win the championship with Fernando. Like, it's a bit like, I suppose... Now with Seb, like you know, the work that's gone out of Ferrari, there's no, he's going to be the only guy that's going to win the championship, and it's going to happen, right? So, um, so we we agreed, figures were there, it was all good, it was all sweet, and then what they changed their tune on was it wasn't two years fixed, it was um, it was a one on one, so optional in the second year. So I'm not happy about that. Uh, neither was Flavio. So um, around Canada time. I started to get a little bit, my gut, my gut was like, mm, I don't know how hungry they are. Luca Montezemolo wanted me to go and see him personally in Italy, um, very short notice, which Flavio said, no, Mark, yeah, doesn't need to. There's nothing complicated about this Luca, just sign the contract as it is. So you were dealing with Luca Montezemolo, not Stefano Domenicano? Initially, Stefano in Monaco, we had meetings on the boat, um, and then um, Luca and Flavio were dealing with it. And then I think that... Uh, 
Bernie, Dietrich, Christian all started to get a bit of wind of it and then it all started to shut down. Now, I don't know if that was because Seb was going there, I don't know if it was, it was Robert going there. There was lots of connotations at the time about it because that seat was quite, Fernando was obviously, as he is, trying to get these, these people in place. And I was part of the agenda, clearly, about bringing lap time to all Ferrari, KK. I can bring some Red Bull IP in my own mind, head, you know, my IP in, in terms of that. Um, and a big thing for me was, I was like, Flavio, I need to sit in the car before we sign this contract because I'm worried if I won't fit in it because I know it's very small. It was a big topic for me. No, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. <laughs> so I'm um, very nervous about that. It's fine to say that. Let's just get it done. We'll sort it out later, which probably a bit of truth in that in terms of once you've got the contract done, then they'll have to sort it out because they're going to change the car. It's their problem, not yours. You know? Anyway, very, very quickly, um, Red Bull started to get a bit more intense and, um, yeah, the, the Ferrari thing was, you know, I said, I don't want to be sitting here in Monaco in six months' time going that the, the option's not going to be renewed for whatever reason. And at that time, Porsche was starting to come on the scene at 12 and around that 12 period as well, so I was like, oh, yeah. I could either have potentially 15 years with Porsche or one year with Ferrari or whatever. You know, I was trying so, to look at all connotations. So it was actually the Porsche thing that stopped stopped you taking it rather than uh, the Red Bull thing in a way. There was a few things. There was there was a one plus one, which wasn't good. I was happy with the conditions. I was very keen to drive for Marinello, no, Marinello, no question about it. Jack Brabham, Jack, I saw Jack in Melbourne, I think it was, a, it was one of Jack, he said, if you drive for this, I'll be pissed off. So Jack was furious. Why? Furious. He said, I spent my whole life trying to beat trying these to bastards. Right, yeah. Why are you going to drive for them? Jack was not happy about it. Porsche, yep. A lot of different little okay. topics in there saying, okay, well, I just don't think this is right. And I drove for Red Bull for two more years. Don't re- I don't regret the Ferrari call at all. I don't regret the Ferrari call at all. I think the Red Bull uh, exit slash, you know, depart- you know still, I've never been closer to Red Bull. So you went on to Porsche. We talked about Porsche. Yep. You've done the deal. How, how difficult was it for you to go back to Le Mans with Porsche after the shunts you had there in 1990? Uh, difficult, difficult, yeah, because they were extremely traumatic crashes, emotionally the most brutal probably period of my career because it does flash before you, life does flash before you, so you're going to go back to the same venue. It's amazing what the mind can, it puts it into capsules in terms of a closed car again, the scenarios there. How's it going to feel? It's fine pretty much on your own, but again, if you've got to start racing hard and going inside people and doing this and doing that. So um, I needed to be pretty strong mentally, let's say, but I knew once I got through that first part, I'd be okay. But it is to be, it is, is to be said, I never really, and still to this day, haven't got a love affair with Le Mans. Because of those flips at Probably that. Probably that. Um, that was tough, but it also was important for me to show I can come back to them. I remember Terry Boots saying that I think at the time he would never recover from it mentally, those two shunts within a day. And they were sort of like a bit of fuel on the fire. And, and um, Did you ever recover mentally? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So Boots yeah, was wrong? Yeah, 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 but it was nice to, to go, all right, well, I respect him, no question. He's proven F1, one race in F1, okay, and there was a few guys like, how the hell is this guy going to get over it? Um, and then I had Mercedes, and because then, then I was going to go and maybe drive for, for IndyCar. Uh, Norbert Hug was looking at IndyCar, and then Greg Moore had signed a Penske contract, and Greg Moore got killed that year in Fontana. So it was like, 99 was a tough year, emotionally, because the momentum was going out of my career, and I had no chips on the table. I had nothing to show. You know, I was hassling the shit out of Eddie Jordan. Eddie then introduced me to Paul Stoddard, and then blah, blah, blah. And, and, and the rest is history. But 
you talk about your mental strength going back to Le Mans from the moment I saw you recover from that broken leg the way you did that absolutely no chance you were going to have a problem mentally coming back to Le Mans I mean when we talk about that leg now Mm. you know and that took just the fight to come back you had a new teammate and it's all just the timing was nasty um, and the surgery wasn't great to start with so that was tough because obviously and that's you know, the, the, the poor guy, the poor surgeon in Hobart was obviously extremely nervous. It was a reasonably straightforward procedure, but still had, you know, you can get the orthopedics a little bit off, which he did. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I found out, you know, later that there was a few things which were a bit amiss with, with the work in the knee, in the leg, in the knee joint area and also at the fracture site. So that was like a massive kick in the nuts because it's like shit, the clock's ticking. I was putting the work in, and and then when I got some other advice from orthopedics, they said, "Look, Mark, we're going to have to reset the clock here and do some more work." And I remember in the in the um, actually, and that was I think Michael was there that test. Um, I wanted to the, yeah. the first one back the first one, yeah, I'll never yeah, forget it I yeah, was there yeah, you hobbled yeah, to yeah, the car yeah, yeah. you first did day crutches. first day off the first day off crutches that day because I wanted to show Dietrich that I wasn't on crutches you did 80 on laps he was very keen to make sure there was no crutches to be seen um, and I remember him telling me that once in Tasmanian hospital he said it's fine where he was brilliant he said mate we're not going to do and that was another reason about the Ferrari course like Dietrich you know when I was in when literally I was in the shit like I was in hospital ribs shoulder you know contusion the left lung leg snapped in half Dietrich's like we're going to wait for you I hadn't won a race at that point good brilliant quality brilliant quality so and then I remember I had a bit of orthopedic work about a week before I went to the test and I thought, I said to the surgeon, Dave Hahn, I said, Dave, mate, we have so screwed this up, mate. I am so much, I'm in so much pain now. Why am I in so much pain? He goes, beautiful. Exactly what I wanted to hear. He said, the fracture site now is, you are now, it's starting to dynamite, starting to heal. Because the way I was set up before, it was never going to heal for yourself. So I was like, my God, the pain in my leg. I said, yep, yeah, I know. Um, and I remember getting these tablets when I was in, um, I was moved to two different hospitals, and I'm jumping around a bit here, mate, but anyway, I was moved in, uh, I was in Tasmania for a week, and then I went to another hospital for a week in, in Victoria, at Vimy House, the AFL guys put me in, which was a great setup. I woke up one night, and the leg was just massive, swollen, just pressure on it, temperature, and I said um, to the nurse, I need some pain relief, because I was very, very low on the, on the, on the morphine, I was very, I just, again, just trying to be, just tough it out, you know, I don't need all this chemicals and, and help, but this one night I was in misery and she gave me these tablets called Endone, which people will know, a lot of the listeners will know what Endone is, very powerful. And I thought to myself, shit, I'm going to keep some of these for when I'm going to get back in the car. And then I asked the doctors, um, you know, so I, I kept, I remember the name, and obviously still to this day, because <laughs> it was such, it was a magic, magic medication, pills, because it was so powerful. Um, and obviously you get the dosage right, because crack addicts, I think, have this stuff crushed down, right? So it's a bloody serious potion. Um, and they said, there's no way you're going in a Grand Prix car having had this medication. Oh, okay. So I didn't do that, because it was obviously a pretty, uh, pretty powerful. But yeah, um, and also, mate, so I, I got to the car, the middle of my shin bone was just, it just was like on fire and sharp pain in the middle of that front shin there. And Dietrich was um, in the garage, Helmut was in the garage, all the mechanics were nervous because they just see me. I, was a, I wasn't normal Mark, you can see I was, but, but I had to do this and I didn't want to disrupt the program. 
<coughs> new car and normally we'd time the pit exit so the red light would go at the end of the day and we would go onto the track so the red light would go off to green as we're going down the pit lane right on 9 o'clock. And I was so keen to do this lap myself. I want to do the installation of the car with the, all the mechanics to, outside my selfish just they want to do the lap itself. So we, I drove out, time going down, going down, going down, one at the other end, and a bit of a drive down to the pit exit. The light stayed red, dread, dread. I'm going, fuck, it needs to go green, go green, go green. And then it didn't go green, it stayed, sorry, it stayed red. And so I stopped. And against all instinct, obviously, you can't go on the track with a red light. I'm like, oh. And then McLaren, Ferrari, all the guys are starting to come out around the car. So very, very quickly, it wasn't about Mark now. I'm like, shit, now the team, why is this track not going green? It was 9 o'clock on the clock. And then they're like, I'm saying, guys, I'm the radio guy. guys, like, yeah, because I'm experienced enough now, this is not good. And Adrian went mental. Mental, because the guys had to pull the car. It was pretty much, we might as well have parked the car in the Ferrari garage. It was a fuck up. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> I don't remember this story. Yeah, I had to bring it all the way back. Get it back in. I'm like, oh, this is just not meant to be. I'm in there. My legs on fire. Team's furious now. The whole thing's going peak time. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome back. Anyway, the rest of the day was good. And so then we fast forward. Do you feel that the leg slowed you down? No. In any way? Uh, I had a little bit at the start of that year, but it made me really appreciate when you're 100% active that you are so lucky you know a bit of adversity like that when I was not obviously when you're not mobile I mean I could you know wipe my ass through the whole thing but in terms of actually you know you need a bit of help early doors and that's a real wake up call so I'd often drive up to Nottingham see Dave Park and um, he'd say mate just keep eating well because I'm saying what can I do he said just keep eating well do what I tell you you know rah rah and I used to always stop at the petrol station and get two packets of ginormous minstrels. <laughs> That's what he meant, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so well, I remember those, they were gorgeous. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, and there was another time I had a bit of work done on it, sort of halfway through again, sort of three months in. And um, I rang him about, you know, five or six days later. I said, I think it's infected. So I took a photo, trying to set it up and rah, and he goes, you dickhead, you dickhead. What have you been doing? And he knew I'd been training. I'd been on the rowing machine. I'd been doing something with you. He could tell. Yeah, you could tell. Well, mate, it's the true Aussie grit thing, isn't it? There we go. Hey, is that where the Aussie grit thing came from? The, the, the fight that you had to... I think earlier, show. I think, you know, just because when I left Australia, everyone, everyone said, six months he'll be back. Probably. Most but journo, you know, all the experts. Oh, yeah, mate, he'll be back. No, dreaming. And you just sort of think, well, it's a big responsibility to, on yourself, on, like, on that, just that... I suppose tenacious hanging in there. Everyone's got levels or standards, right? Like some people, and there's people who've got more, more tenacity and more tenacious than I am. But in terms of what I had to show, I suppose, um, yeah, it's well known that in four wheels, you know, I mean, look at the New Zealand strike rate to get in Formula One. It's not right. Look at the Australian strike. We have four winners in 60, 70 years have we got. Yeah. It's not our best sport to try and pick to be good at. Well, look, let's go back to life after Formula One now. It seems a good place to, to sign out, really. Because the Aussie, what are you, you're now a businessman. Is that what we call you? Um, How do you want to, an oh, a clothing think, entrepreneur? <laughs> what are we, what's, what's it called? What's the clothing line called? Aussie Grit, Aussie Grit Apparel. Um, and as where you did know, that, mate, Where yeah. did that come from? Well, because, I think because 
I've always loved the outdoors. I've always been I'm a country. I have been a country boy. I spent a lot of time in the country growing up in Australia. And those early years turning professional, I'd often take myself into the snowy mountains in Australia on my own. And, and obviously, you know, good accommodation, don't get me wrong, but in terms of I'd train on my own, three sessions a day, swim, bike, run, or stretch in gym and run. And that was all done outside a gym, if you like. I love being in that environment. So... I thought that I had a wardrobe full of lots of different brands that were doing a good job of each sort of garment here and there. And I thought, well, hang on a second. I think that I've met so many amazing people along the way, phenomenal athletes, phenomenal people, and they've been putting up also with sometimes a bit of mediocrity here and there in terms of, you know, whether it's whatever, skiing or, you know, any of their sort of chosen sports and motor racing and sort of how we go about it systematically sort of making things slightly better in every area that you can do. And I thought, well, let's let's encourage people to continue to, to play in that space but give them the gear that they need. So that's one part of modern Mark Webber, post-retirement. Yeah. What a Media? Mm. Yeah. Pundit? Yeah. Poach return, gamekeeper, is that how you... How Big, is that? Yeah, well, a little bit. Um, I use small bullets, though. I'm not. Uh, I'm what, pretty yeah. soft on the drivers. I'm gonna yeah, ask exactly. you, are, right? Yeah, of right. course. I don't really have a journalistic bone in my body, to be honest. I'm not overly. If you have an inquisitive mind. Same thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm fascinated with getting the best. Out. I want the drivers to look good um, in terms of you know trying to again portray or ask the questions that well probably you'd like to be asked yourself when you're racing. Um, but also, what are they going through? You know, the emotions of it all. Every weekend has a different dynamic to it. So I remember seeing DC at the end of my career, and he was doing that, and I was saying, why are you at the racetrack? What are you doing here? Go and do something else. And what's fascinating, that I've found myself in a similar position, I'm not doing all the races like David is, but in terms of, I've done 10 Grand Prix this year for Channel 4, um, done a bit for Channel 10 in Australia, um, and then I see you know, where I get offers from, obviously back in the Bernie days to a Bernie said, can you do the podiums? Can you start to do more for our sport? Because the relaxation factor and the chemistry obviously is there with the with the athletes or the people which which is obviously a, a key component so i enjoy live tv i enjoy what, what bit um, of it i enjoy having to deliver um a bit you know it's a bit there's a bit of pressure there you've got to educate the viewers at home but not in a patronizing way because i've got to, and also i've got to ask sometimes the obvious question that you know i know the answer to I know the question sometimes the answer, which is also, you know, is that a bit, you know, mind-numbing can be, but you've got to ask it in a way that also the driver knows that I know the answer to the question, which is also a double whammy. So um, you think, God, that's amazing, that question, but, you know, the people at home. So there's, there's interesting parts to that. So, yeah, that's, that's there's the TV side. Um, there's I've never been close to the Red Bull. I do work with them. I do some work with Rolex, and I do a lot of work with Porsche. So Porsche is my main, my main, my biggest... Workload. I never know. When you're talking about workload, I always think in Formula One, it's sort of the currency that a lot of people understand is number of flights. Are you making as many flights now, post-career, as you were as a racing driver? Um, probably close, but much shorter flights, because I'm obviously bouncing around a lot within Europe. So long yeah. haul is definitely a lot, lot less long haul. But yeah, I've done. I've certainly done the 15, you know, 15 to 18 flights per month in some months since I've stopped. Um, I've done I'm a not bit talking of, about the heli, by the way. Yeah, no, 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 no heli. Um, that's not flight. That's fun. But yeah, it's it's um, it's, it's, it's this evolves, you know, and the balance between yeah, letting that like we said at the top of the interview, the sort of the old Mark Webber, letting that slowly go and accepting the new part, and 
um, family, friends. Like I'd spend time with family and friends while I was racing. I was there physically, but mentally I wasn't there because I was so distracted with my profession, which was poor form for me. But that's just the way it was. Because did I, you realise that at the time? Yeah, but I could. Yeah, absolutely. But I couldn't compartmentalise it that well. Yeah, just because I needed it. Yeah, like I say back to that word intense. Yeah, and I was. All right, and final thoughts. Do you think Formula One is in a good place at the minute? I mean, it's such a crucial time now in terms of the 2021 regulations mm. and things. Mm. I think if you were the man... Motorsport. Doing it? Motorsport is in an interesting place right now. We've got this, you know, what is what is accepted that's, that's risk, that's gladiatorial. Uh, that's always been a key component for me for racing. People have to be able to watch something that other people can't do. Were you um, pro or anti-Halo? I was anti-Halo, but, I mean, also, I don't, you know, it's natural that, you know, like they've always said, well, drivers had full, had open-face helmets for a long time, then they went to full-face helmets. Well, did they not like those? Of course they didn't. Um, for a while, then it's like, of course we need full-face helmets now because we're doing, you know, yeah. you can't drive with an open-face helmet at, you know, 220 mile an hour. Yeah. I mean, they did, but it was like, you know, there was... Yeah. Is motorsport still relevant? That's a, a topic because racing drivers, you know, I'd be fascinated to go to the DVLA and say, well, you know, the license, the waterline on license age in terms of appetite for driver's license, what's that done in the last 50 or 60 years? I reckon it's definitely decreased because it would have decreased and also people less, you know, especially males. I mean, I'm you know, splitting a bit here, but in terms of say males to get a road license, I mean, that was just massive. It's so good to get your road license. I mean, brilliant. Freedom. Yeah. But now, I don't know, is it still like that? You know, where's it all going? Because we've got these you know, other stimulations through tricking our minds through the screen because our eyeballs are looking at other things now and it's this thing that our mind is being stimulated in different ways. So um, we've got to be careful we don't give the drivers too much access to the fans. They need to be still maybe not far as, as Bernie had it, but I think we're, I think the, the drivers are getting really too familiar with the people. Uh, it's too trivial. It's too... The process the of meeting a driver. Just social media, interviews, the way it is, the way we are presenting the drivers now is too familiar. Um, and people lose a little bit of that stardust. You've got to be very careful with that. Uh, Roger Federer. Again, you know, it's, he's approachable, but at competition time, no. It's not approachable. Because he's got a job to do. Is he doing interviews before Wimbledon? No, he's fucking not. So that's what we've got to be careful of. You know, we were talking about who is the Roger Federer of Formula One. I think I'm looking at him. <laughs> no. <laughs> Without the trophy cabinet. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's, you know what I mean? That's no, but the way you went about it, you must be proud. Listen, you must be proud, Mark, of the way you went about it. Very. I am very, because... Um, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> very. All the trophies are real, um, in yeah. terms of, you know, there was, I, I felt that I got those correctly and, and I went about it the right way, and yeah, so that gives you good substance, yeah. Great talking to you. No worries, mate. Thanks, Mark. Cheers. Roger Federer or not, I think Mark comes across as a man completely satisfied with his lot, happy with what he achieved as a racer, and excited about the next chapter in his life, Aussie grit and all. Good on you, Mark. Thanks for your time. Now, next week, I'll be chatting to another big name from the world of F1. So please subscribe to Beyond the Grid to ensure you don't miss out. And you know the drill. Rate and review us. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favourite podcast app. 
And if you want to get in touch, drop us a line using the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. And you can cyberstalk me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>